Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, and everybody in between, that is Eddie Vega. And that is Chibi Ordunia. And this is Words and Shit. Brought to you by The Blah Poetry Spot and Write Art Out. The show where you get to know the person behind the poetry. You know, Eddie, not a lot of people know this about me. But when I was in middle school specifically, I loved wrestling. Really? You know, and to and to timestamp it, this is the the Monday Night Wars era of wrestling. Uh-huh. What yeah. what wrestling aficionados would call the Attitude Era. Oh, okay. So mm-hmm. who were some of the names in that? I mean, this was this was Stone Cold Steve Austin. This was D Generation X. This was the rise of the rock. This was the Undertaker. This was mankind, like, you know. Legends. legends and there's some some people who would argue that the 80s were legends but but these were <laughs> the legends of the late 90s early 2000s right yeah um and one of the things that i loved the most about it was finding other friends who loved wrestling mm-hmm. and i ended up finding like well, i had a close-knit group of i think there were maybe like six of us who like we'd get together at somebody's house every month for the pay-per-views, right? Um, oh, so serious. Yeah, whoever you know could convince their parents to pay for it. <laughs> and not only that, but we had our own little backyard wrestling league. No. Oh yeah. Wait, wait, hold on. Did you have a name? Oh yeah. And a persona. Oh yeah. But not just that. Get this. We had storylines. Okay. I, I'm not surprised. We had storylines and running title competitions. We <laughs> would plan our matches, all right? Because we, we were well aware that wrestling was fake, and we were not about to actually hit each other. <laughs> okay? <laughs> Let's get that straight. So we knew, like, okay, we're going to start here. And the ring was the trampoline, all right? We're going to start on the trampoline, and we would push it against the monkey bars so that we could have, like, a turnbuckle to jump off of and just, woo! And then maybe we'll end up in the garage. And then what if I throw you into the pool? And like, it was serious. (laughs) Hardcore wrestling nerd. And then we would go back and we would, because we would film them. And then you filmed them too. All right. We filmed them and then we would edit them and use this little machine that was used to create like slideshows back when the slideshows were, you remember those little like film that you're, yeah that thing so we had a machine that we would use to do voiceovers to do the commentaries oh my gosh it was serious and it was one next level stuff yeah and it was one of my favorite memories of of childhood just because like it was one of those first moments where i felt like i have people i have found a group yeah and and we had we do things together and we're passionate about things together and and it's just like it was like a second family. Uh-huh. And I loved it. That was awesome. That's great. It's, to find that kind of group is really, really important, really special, especially you found it so early, too. Yeah, it didn't last long, you know, well, but <laughs> we had a moment. We had moments. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah what yeah. about you? You know, it's, it's kind of interesting because um, I, I, I consider myself a. Um, Community chameleon. Mm. I seem to like uh, go from from group to group. You know, I was I was in I was in band when I was younger, 
Mm-hmm. And there was certainly, I was, I was a band nerd, but then I went into the, not everybody in the band circle was in some of my classes. And that was a whole other, you know, the academic set, you know, and I was in speech and debate and all that stuff. So I was with the speech nerds, which, you know, maybe even bridged over into drama nerds. I kind of hung out with them for a little bit, you know. Um, college, I was in student government, but I was also in a fraternity. And uh, so I had like, I had two two groups there. And sometimes there was some interlap, of course, right? And uh, some might call you a social yeah. butterfly. It could be. It could be a social butterfly. Uh, yeah, a, a monarch butterfly, maybe. <laughs> maybe a monarch. Yeah, yeah. But I know. I know the feeling. Sometimes when you, you know, when when you bring somebody along and and uh, to somewhere where you're at, and your people are there, and uh, and they're like, oh, you're a whole other person. You know, they, they they when you find your people and you have your jargon and you have you know, uh, you have your. Um, your inside jokes and all that stuff, and but yeah, yeah, exactly. I I know what you're saying. It's it's a special special thing to find that group, whoever that group is, for you. Yeah, and you know, I I, I bring this up just because we had a conversation with Jessica Salgado, and mm-hmm. there's 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 a lot in her poetry about you know like uh, this this searching right and and trying to find oneself and then. She too has, like you, floated from groups to groups, from stage to page to uh, all over the place and just really seemed to like find her little niche and talks about finding herself and and acceptance. Mm-hmm. And uh, I just, I thought it was a, a beautiful journey that we were allowed to to witness and right. be part of. And the trial and error of it all, you know, that she kind of like, um, the way in which she got to find this group was very interesting. Yeah, for sure. So let's just jump right into this. Jessica Salgado, a Los Angeles-based Salvadoran poet who writes about her family, her culture, her city, and herself. She shared her work in venues and campuses throughout the country. Salgado is a two-time National Poetry Slam finalist and the recipient of the 2020 International Latino Book Award in Poetry. Her work has been featured in the Los Angeles Times, Teen Vogue, Univision, CNN, NPR, TEDx, and a whole bunch of digital platforms. She's an internationally recognized body positive activist and the writer of the column Suelta for Remezcla. Jessica is the author of the bestsellers Corazón, Tesoro and Hermosa, published by um, Not a Cult. And I have to tell you, Chibi, like when, when I published my book, my publisher sent me a screenshot of the top 100 Latinx poetry books being sold that day. Mm-hmm. Mine was at 75. That was my peak. <laughs> but I looked at the list and like the first 10 titles or so, or some of the 10 of the first 20 titles we're by Jessica Salgado. So mm. yeah, I'm really happy that she's here with us tonight. So excited. <laughs> Jessica, thank you so much for joining us here today. Of course. I'm so happy to be here. And um, <laughs> ten of the, I haven't written 10 books yet. <laughs> you have different versions, so it like counted each one of them. <laughs> oh, yeah. Like my digital, the digital ones and then the actual. I've mm-hmm. been very blessed that mm. my books have gone very far and very wide with an Indian independent publisher. I think I published on my publisher and it 
in their first year of being in business. And so they've only been in business like about as long as I've been writing books. And so it's been really cool to grow together. And and we're always like obsessing over numbers. And we're always just like, oh my God, did you see that the return rate is this and this and this and that? And it's super cool and exciting. I love it. Well, we are blessed to have you here. I'm um, so happy to be here. I love answering questions. I'm queen of TMI. So you could ask awesome. whatever. And if you and if it's out of pocket, I'll tell you. So there you go. Queen of TMI and TMZ. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> Let's go ahead and hand, start the show the way we always do and just hand it over to you, Jessica. Please bless us with a few poems. Yes, thank you. So like they said, my name is Jessica and I have written three books. Sorry, my water bottle, uh, pseudo, like it was sweating on my book. Um, so I'm the writer of three different books, uh, Corazón, Tesoro, and Hermosa, and they're a trilogy. So they all kind of like bleed into it. I mean, everything we write is about our, ourselves and our lives, right? But um, specifically these books are, um, sorry, I'm adjusting. Okay, we're good. Um, are a trilogy and, and I'm gonna be reading today for my second book, Tesoro, which is right here. She's gonna turn two years old on November 1st. Um, all my books were released in the fall. So all their birthdays are like near each other. But um, Tesoro was the book that like, I've been sharing a lot from here during Latinx Heritage Month because um, this is the book that I wrote with the woman in my family in mind and just their survival and all of that. And when I think of, of Latinx culture and like, I mean, I'm Salvadoran. So when I think of my family and my culture and what we've overcome and what we're doing and how far we're gonna go, it's always the woman. Not, you know, men, men are cool too and they do their shit, whatever. But the women in my life, for my experience and in my life, the women are the ones that have been um, just killing the game from day one. And so um, I'm gonna share some of that. So, acabamos. So um, the whole book poses the question, um, the whole book poses the question like, how did we survive the men? So, um, you know, it gets to be a little, we'll go, here we go, mommy's cookie. Mami says that every house should always have a pot of frijoles. Mami says that good pupusas aren't only about the ingredients, but also about how round they are. That every cup of coffee needs a pan dulce. That an egg, queso fresco, and tortilla can be a whole meal. That the chicken needs a little bit more tomato sauce. She needs to bake something to warm up the house. Banana bread, because the bananas are bad. Keeps the stale rolls in, stale, stale rolls. That's a tongue twister stale rolls in the freezer to make bread pudding later. Mommy says that the cousins are coming over and she has to cook something to return, and she has to cook something for them because they'll need feeding, that the neighbor brought over carne asada and now she has to make something to return with the plate, asks if I'm ready for dinner, says, try this, says, take a little, says, a little bite. I put some away for you. Mommy in her small kitchen, the rattle of her dishes, her heavy pans, her smile as we eat and say, que rico. Her dancing eyes when we ask for more. Mommy and the way she feeds us her never ending heart. Come, taste this. I saved you some. Do you want me to pour it into a bowl? I was waiting for you. So that is Mommy's cooking. And so this is a poem I wrote for my grandmother um, who passed away many years ago, um, I think it's been 10 years now, 10 or nine years. And um, I wrote this while she was alive. And so I'm 
I'm really happy that I have a poem that I wrote about her while she was still here. So it wasn't written out of grief, it was written out of admiration. And I think it's important for us to have, to know the difference between things, right? And so here you go. In our family, the husbands die on you early and your old age is spent in churches or with daughters raising children you are too tired to love properly. You get phone calls on the weekends, letters only the first Saturday of the month, visits yearly. Everyone comes with their noise and suitcases, their English that sounds as if they were speaking from beneath the ocean. Your grandchildren forget their Spanish. They speak it gargled and backwards. They hate the insects, the sun, the food, complain of boredom. They claim all of the hammocks, almost kill the dogs and the chickens from the fright of their fireworks. They lose your good pots down by the river. They spread themselves all over the compound. They put out the candles on your altar. They hide the statue, your statue of the Virgin Mary in their blankets, refuse to pray the rosary with you, and are surprised when you come after them with a fly swatter when you ask your daughter not to bring them the next time. In our family, the word grandmother is holy and never said in vain. She is spoken of in reverence, and the younger generations question her as if she were theology. Calling cards become tickets to confessionals, all the children and their children dialing the long numbers to hear her voice unfold itself like dusty Polaroids kept wrapped in worn handkerchiefs, yellow reminders of where you came from, of where you've been, of what you are. And our family, grandmothers, are God. You come to them with hands extended, thankful, and in awe, they survive it all and become the only constant, the compass of our entire tribe. The men, they all die early, but God, she sweeps her porch, coils the long braid of her hair into a knot held at the nape of her neck and stretches her arms wide when everyone comes home one more time. Full disclosure, I, you guys almost saw me run the fuck out of here. So my house is on top of some garages and I think somebody slammed the garage door <laughs> downstairs and I thought we were having an earthquake. And my ass is about to be like, y'all could stay here, but I'm going to go save myself. So um, that was that moment of panic. If you saw it on my face, I was just like, the last time I was, uh, the last earthquake we had, I was on my Instagram live and I didn't have pants on. So that was fun. <laughs> this is called, let's skip this one. Maybe, do we? A ver. Okay. The year the big earthquake happened in El Salvador, Jenny and I went anyway. A month later, a second earthquake. Mommy called us, her voice another tremor. We were fine. I was trying to forget my first love, hoping he would shake loose. I wanted to leave him on the side of the road. I wanted to wash him off in a river. My grandmother would laugh at my sadness. What did I know of love? I couldn't wash my own calzones. I didn't know how to palmear any tortillas. I burned the rice and if she had raised me, I would be more stone than pulp, a good girl that goes to church, prays the rosary, keeps her mouth shut. Instead, I am a huevona with poems. Mama, deje a la niña, Tia Marina would say. 
and she would bring me a warm tortilla con requesón. Toma. She played Juan Gabriel softly before bed, her way of telling me, go ahead, cry. And when it was time to return to mommy, Thea packed my broken heart back into my luggage, wrapped it in newspaper, tucked it between the jocote preserves and dried cheese, put it to use, she said, and I did. And that poem is called Americana. And um, my grandma. <laughs> All right, uh, moving along, I have a couple more poems and then we'll be crossing over to uh, having a conversation. So this one was originally called um, White Men on OK Cupid, but I changed the title because white men be getting butthurt. And so I changed it to survival tactics because I want, I still want to want people to want to buy my book and feel like they were being like cultural, like they were being worldly, you know, like, oh, look at me, I'm buying a book with this name in Spanish and like, oh, I'm so, and then they land on this shit and they're like, fuck. Like I wanted them to be mad after they bought the book. I didn't want them to get mad when they were like flipping through it at the bookstore. That's how you get them. <laughs> a white man on the dating app asks why I don't date white men. Says he likes curvy Latinas, that he's always wanted to sleep with someone like me. Says that I'm the smart kind of Mexican, the kind with a job and no kids. I probably have a temper and he finds angry women sexy. White man offers to buy me tickets to any concert. Says he can spoil a little brown girl like me. He's already dreaming about it. How holy that will be. How saved I will become. White man is already colonizing teaching me that he is God, that I don't know better. It's his job to show me after all, I am brown meant to be walked on like soil, like hands, like backs. I don't say anything. I don't know who he is. I am only a picture on a website, only a name on a direct message, a profile description that says I am Salvadoran and only date men of color, meaning I can only love you to find breath in someone that understands the suffocation, meaning I can only love somebody that doesn't look like what took everything, meaning I am only willing to love my own reflection. But the white man, he thinks he is an exception, and of course he does. He is a white man after all. And then I want to end that poem with like, bitch, and then like, just, you know, walk off stage. Um, I have two poems left. And, um, and then I will be um, uh, joining back in conversation with your host, which I'm really excited about. Okay, so this piece is called Knives, and it's a trigger warning. It's a poem about um, assault and the survival of it. The story goes... The man was not a stranger. My mother knew his name. He was a machete pressed at her side. She turned her teeth and nails into her own knives and managed to get away. The story goes, the man was not a stranger. My mother knew his name. He was hands using her curls as a rope to pull her where she did not want to go. My mother used her knives again. The story goes, the man is my father, and my mother is asleep 
he is drunken hands in the night. She is a no. He is drunken fists in the night. My mother cries herself to sleep. The story goes, the man was not a stranger. He was my cousin-in-law and I was a six-year-old girl. His penis, a strange creature in his hands. The sky as dark as my eyes. The story goes, the man was not a stranger. I knew his name. I met him for dinner somewhere, and then afterwards his car closed in around me. His teeth found my breast. I used the knives to get away. The story goes, the man is a stranger, and I am a girl with a drunk friend on a bench. He is gun and snarl. I am years of men breathing down my neck. I know my way out. I get us home safe. The story goes, there is a phone call from my home country. And this time, the man is my favorite uncle, the sweetest of them all. And the woman isn't a woman, but instead a girl. And I don't know how she got away. She must have inherited the same knives that I did. The story goes, every woman has a story. The story goes, the men who raised us are someone else's stories, sometimes even our own. The story goes, a man listens to a group of girlfriends talking in a bar, sharing stories the way some talk about surviving a war. You know, the long list of, of encounters, of assault, of rape, of, of a girlfriend sharing her location, of a screenshot, just in case, of loving the night, but terrified of what it brings out of men, of loving a wolf, of being the lamb, of keys between knuckles, a pepper spray in pockets, a hammer in the car, of two women locking eyes in a bus full of men, leaving a room when there are no other women in it, taking the long way home to avoid the stranger behind you, the long list of exhaustion, of anger, of rage, and a man listens. And, and maybe the man is you, or your boy, or your cousin, or your brother. And the man, and the man hisses, not all of us. And we women blink, sharpening our knives, knowing we will need them to get ourselves home. And I'm gonna share my last poem with y'all. I know that was a really heavy one. So um, let's come back from that. And thank you for joining me on that. All right. At my funeral, I want you to play Bitty Bitty Bomb Bomb followed by Back That Ass Up, followed by anything by my baby Drake. At my funeral, I want you to eat all that you can. Please don't turn down my mommy's food. She will be grieving and offer you platefuls. Say yes to each one. This will make her feel closer to me. At my funeral, don't read any of my poems. I wrote those to stay alive. Let them rest, stretch their limbs, pack their bags, Find new fingers. At my funeral, let the men make jokes. I have understood that my machismo only allows them to be tender through laughter, and I want them soft 
and sweet during our final goodbye. At my funeral, thank the woman. My mother, my sisters, my girlfriends kiss their palms, keep their tissues. They are holy and what I am the saddest about leaving. At my funeral, let the babies run free. Sneak pastries into their chubby hands. Watch their faces flush with delight at my funeral. Find all of the little girls and let them try on my lipsticks, especially the red ones. Let them walk through the house, each mouth a rosebud made just for me at my funeral. Don't feel obligated to cry. Dance if that's what your body asks for. Understand that I felt most alive beneath strobe lights and loud music at my funeral. I will be dead, of course, but this, this will be a victory. Praise the sudden illness or accident that claimed me. Praise the hospital bed I exhaled in. Praise the doctors and nurses and prayers that try to keep me. Praise this heart of mine that couldn't anymore. Praise all of the years that came, wrapped around my legs and pulled me away. Praise my death because it did not come from my own hands or from a razor blade, or from a pill. Instead, it came because it was my time, because my body or my God said, come home. And I collected all that I am, and I walked through that door at my funeral. Please, play a song that says I survived myself. Praise be such a sweet, sweet end. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Love it. Thank you Great. so much. Yeah, that, that last piece. Like you had me everywhere on that one because at the first I was like, yeah, I want that too. <laughs> I want that too. And then and then you kind of like you bring us down Thank a little you. bit in a good way. I mean, like, but like it's become serious, you know? Thank and, you. Uh, thank you. Yeah, that was fantastic. I want to start, you know, like, because you were talking about your three books uh, that you got out. You just recently published the, yes. the third one, Hermosa, uh, which won the 2020 International Latino Book Award. So one, okay. props to you, and two, how was that? How was receiving that? You know, it, I, I remember I found out that I was a finalist and I lost my shit. I am not considered, sorry, like my, whatever, y'all are dudes, but you got to cope with this. Okay, there we go. We're fine. Wardrobe <laughs> malfunction. So um, I have never won an, won an award for me. I don't submit my work to journals. I am pretty much, uh, I do shit in my own lane. And if someone pays attention, they pay attention. If they don't, they don't, right? So I didn't realize that um, a lot, for those of you that don't know, with these books, your publishers sometimes are the ones that put you up for these, like they submit you, you have to submit to win these things, right? And I'm very anti-submission just because I'm high, like I don't, I didn't do the whole college shit. Like I'm anti-institution, fuck everybody, right? But whatever, but I, love, <laughs> but I love everybody, but you know what I mean, right? And um, and so I didn't know that I had been submitted to this. And then I was a finalist along with Carla Cordero. Shout out to one of my dear friends. And her book is amazing. And um, and so uh, we I was a finalist. And I was just happy enough with being a finalist because I've never been a finalist for shit. And so I'm like, oh, I get to put a sticker on my 
that's fine. Like I'm fine. And so when the award ceremony was happening, it's not that I don't believe in my work. It's just that my work is so unconventional and it isn't always, I'm not always telling the stories that folks expect. And I push, I push the envelope a lot for the Latinx community. Like I use really, like I'm a recovering Catholic. So I was going to be a nun at some point. It was, it, it gets wild when you hear my story, but um, it affected my sexuality and the way that I lived my life because it was like so filled of so much full of so much guilt. So I write about that a lot. And then, you know, older Latinx folks aren't very receptive of that because they still believe in institutions. So I was just like, they're not gonna, whoever these judges are probably like older, like, and they're not gonna, they're not gonna pick me. I have a fucking poem about sucking dick. Like they're not gonna fucking whatever. And then, so then I was listening to the, the thing. I was sitting, I was sitting without a shirt on at my laptop watching the whole fucking thing, hot ass fuck sitting next to the air conditioner. And when they were like, oh, Jessica, the winner there is Hermosa by Jessica. I was like, bitch, are you serious? Like, so it was really exciting. Um, and, and I hope that moving forward, if I'm ever up for any award, I, I don't expect it. And it's a pleasant surprise because I feel like wanting, like not wanting it because I wanted it. But I think when you walk into something being like, this is mine, it's, and then like it's more of a, a letdown and I treating it like a slam where you're like, I don't know what's going to happen. Mm-hmm. And we'll see what the judges, the judges are on some shit. And then you could be like, the judges are on some shit and then you're fine. <laughs> but um, yeah. I too have a poem about sucking dick. So I'm glad yours wanted to. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Gets a, but his poem gets a 30 like every time. So I don't. Uh. Oh, you know what? That that is a short poem. And it's like the first line it goes, I ate his ass because I loved him. And then it goes, I gave myself lockjaw sucking dick. And so then I go on about like doing all this stupid shit because I love a dude. And then I'm like, and then I laugh with my homegirls about how awful he's at sex. I'm like, but wait, the joke is on me. So that's the poem. Mm. And um, and so, but then I'm like, who the fuck is gonna want to give an award to a book that says I gave, you know, I gave myself lockjaw sucking dick? <laughs> but I have. But it's, it, <laughs> it's all part of the process, I guess. But um, have you? Are you in a in a transition from being the slam poet to the page poet? Uh, is it a continuum? Uh, like, uh, where where are you on this? Is you can go back and forth? Uh, I've been both. I've always been both. Um, I think I've been more of a of a page poet that <clears throat> transitioned into slamming. Um, I, I didn't even know spoken word was a thing until I stumbled into the poetry lounge in 2008. Like, and to, well, poetry jam. Until I found the poetry jam a couple of years before that, I didn't know it was like I didn't know. Like, I knew what open mics were, and but I thought of like beatnik poets and the fucking hippy dippy clappy shit. And like, I used to really like Charles Bukowski. Don't ask me. I was in a dark place, but um, <laughs> I used to be. And I used to watch his readings, but he was like a white man, like sitting at a table, like reading shit, like he hated it, you know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and um, and so that was like my experience with, with things. And I was like, when I first started coming on the scene, I was really pretentious about being an on-paper writer. And I was just like, these people keep performing the same fucking poems. They don't even write. And I would try to read a new, and I would read a new poem every time I got on stage. And I criticized, like, I remember Rudy is a dear friend of mine, so I could say this. I used to be like, why does Rudy always do the same fucking poem? Da, 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 whatever. And I didn't realize what he was doing, that he was honing his sets, that he was honing his poems 
for features that it's something you you that's what open mics are for for you to work out the poems and to do them and then once you're a recognized writer like a poet you have your staple pieces that you people expect to hear you know what i mean and all these things so it's been really interesting to transition from page to stage and then now back solely to page like i don't i, have, I don't think i've memorized a poem since 2008 when i was on a team you know and <laughs> And even then, I'm awful at group pieces because I change. Like, if it's my piece, I could change a word whenever I want. But in a group piece, I can't change it because we're in unison. Poor Yao had to put up with me all the fucking time in a group piece because I would make up words. Like, out of <laughs> nowhere. like, adding and in the middle of sentences. And then he'd be like, this isn't how we practiced it. But, you know, uh, yeah. I Coach Shibby yeah. would uh, not like that, I have to tell you. No, no. Coach Shibby would be all up on that ass. <laughs> um, but... <laughs> I was going to say. Uh, that's why my coaches knew that I killed that Indies. They were like, oh, just put Jessica up on an <laughs> <laughs> And that's her shit. But in a group piece, just hide me in the back. Don't make me the center. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll edit and I'll and I'll write a lot of the group piece. But please don't put me in the front because then everybody's going to get up. I was going to say, I, I totally relate because now that like all, all my features are virtual, I literally have a teleprompter going. I just have a Word document that I scroll through and read on my poems. I was like, I don't got to memorize shit. <laughs> uh, it's, it's really liberating because now you have like, I have three books to read from, right? And mm -hmm. then, or whatever else. And then those are not the only poems I have in the world, right? So I have I have all of my material that I could read at a feature. And I, and I like, I love that in that way. But I also miss being able to hear people when I'm reading poems. Mm -hmm. Do you yeah. uh, prepare your your feature like with a set list, or is it does it flow out like you like oh you know what I'm gonna read from this book or I'm gonna read from that book or I don't this is to totally bad I never prepare anything ever you not even my keynotes my TED talk I have a TEDx talk I didn't go to rehearsal they weren't freaking out they were like Jessica we need to know what your talk is and I was just like I got it I'm good. I showed up the day of, they're like, what's your talk? I'm like, I'm just gonna do it when I get on stage. And I'm luckily, I'm good at that. Not everybody is, so don't do that shit. <laughs> I'm just <laughs> I'm just really good at, at, at uh, feeling out what's in my heart. And, and because my experience has been when I've had sex or I've walked in with something very determined, um, my spirit might not be it at the moment. You know, like let's say I chose really like, um, aggressive pieces for whatever reason right and it's a really tender vulnerable room and now i'm doing it a disservice by doing like these pieces like talking shit like to, you know we all have the talking shit pieces so sometimes like I, i'm doing it a disservice and maybe a poem like the one that i ended with will be more well received in that room instead of the poem will be like i am woman hear me roar maybe it's more like let's talk about feelings everybody or some poem some rooms want more um, aggressive performers or, or or want more like, you know, you're in a theater, you're not going to do the poem about uh, that has really quiet, still moments, unless you know that you can deliver that all the way through. So mm -hmm. it's been a, a skill that I've, I've been able to develop. It took a while, but yeah. Mm, I love that. Well, you know, for anyone that is unfamiliar with your with your journey, uh, you know, like you started off as, you know, unknown brown girl in LA, right? And like you said, you dropped out of high school and somewhere along that line, uh, you realized that like writing is what you wanted to do for the rest of your life. Uh, and then became an Instagram celebrity 
and are now a award-winning author without, like you said, ever submitting to academic journals, without ever being published in any of those kind of like literary magazines. I guess my question is, how'd you do it? <laughs> it was uh, uh, a mixture of things, right? Um, uh, it's preparation, timing, and luck. It's kind of <clears throat> what, what happens, right? Uh, I've been a writer my whole life, uh, ever since I learned how to write. And I grew up self like I learned how to write by copying the poets that I enjoyed. So I would take Sandra Cisneros poems and re like copy her entire structure, but with my words, right? Or I would take songs that I liked and copy the entire structure, but like change the words to them, be mine. And and I did that with every new write, every new poet I would find that I enjoyed until I, I found communities for poetry. And early on in my poetry too, um, I was catfishing on a poetry forum because I didn't think that people wanted to hear stuff from a woman that looked like me because this was the early, late 90s, early 2000s, right? So body positivity movement wasn't a thing. Like mm -hmm. nobody was talking about loving a fat body and like, and there were hardly any fat people on TV. Like there was, that I remember there was Monique, you know what I mean? And like, and then not much else, right? And, and if there were, it was always people that were like, the joke of the show that we're always being, it was always like, it wasn't a good thing to be a fat person. And so, um, and then I found the Poetry Jam and I saw like, I found Rachel McKibbins um, mm -hmm. who looks so different than someone that you would expect to see on HBO, you know? And then um, that encouraged me. And then I ended up at the Poetry Lounge and there was Georgia Me, And then there was all these other like different body types, poetry, who was like this big, beautiful black man, right? And like all these different kinds of people of different body types, different lifestyles, different things. And so through that, I started kind of performing and now my career shifted. And then through that whole time, I've always been on the internet. I was a catfish and then I just, started sharing as myself. So I was on Tumblr, I was on Twitter. I've been like at most platforms at their inception, like where I'm just like, well, I'm here, you know? And it's just like, um, I I really embraced the internet as a way to connect with people because I felt so isolated in my life and mm -hmm. I felt so alone. So I wasn't really looking to go viral, right? Um, because at the time things weren't going viral. And then at the peak, remember when all the platforms would have button poems and and like all of a sudden Upworthy and BuzzFeed and Huffington Post started finding poems. I had a poem called How Not to Make Love to a Fat Girl that kind of hit all the platforms. And that was what started everything, a lot of everything to me. So it was, it was really interesting that until I started writing about my fatness in a way where I owned it, nothing really was happening for me. I had made a name for myself at my home venue, the Poetry Lounge, which is not a small feat because the Poetry Lounge is full of legends. Um, but that was it. Like I wasn't getting booked. Like I wasn't eating off of my art, you know? Mm -hmm. And then um, when that video went viral, then I started kind of um, getting inquiries. And then I had a couple of features on Latina Magazine and Huffington Post. And I, then a friend hooked me up with a Huffington Post editor. So then I started writing for Huffington Post and I got to post my poems on there and nobody was doing that at the time. And then like little by little, it's like, I've said like, my community put me on, but it was because I was so plugged in to an artistic community, into the, the poetry world and into the Latinx artistic community in LA or and beyond that, right? Because I had already connected with people on Instagram and all that. And I was just sharing my life and people all of a sudden were coming to my pages and connecting with me and my debauchery, you know, and like... <laughs> 
debauchery yeah, gets likes. <laughs> yeah, you know, and but I'm just being myself and, and it's worked out. And I've also have an incredible work ethic. Uh, uh, I mean, I wrote three books in three years and that comes from coming from a family that's hardworking, from parents that, you know, that migrated here to like su support their families back home. And unfortunately that's part of capitalism too, right? But my parents always instilled in me like, you don't call out of work sick. You don't. Da, 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 you don't do this. Like, like, what do you mean you're gonna take a day off because you're not feeling well? Like, take your ass to fucking work. And so, which isn't the greatest thing, but it also transferred to my writing, to my poetry, where I could immerse myself completely in in these projects, and I'm not happy until they're done. And and then also like I'm. I, I'm glad that success came to me when I was in my 30s because if I would have come in my 20s, I would have been doing some stupid ass shit with it. I still do, <laughs> I still do really stupid things with it, but even worse. And so, um, but but it's just been like, and I have incredible mentors that guide me whenever I need anything. Like Shion and Javon are um, incredible people that will tell me like, all right, you're getting too comfortable. What's the next thing? Where are you going to next? So that's kind of how I got to where I'm at. Nice. That's awesome. Uh, you. You, know, you have mentioned uh, your Latinx heritage, and this is Latinx Heritage Month. Now we've, we've uh, officially the last day. <laughs> the last day, we've we've had you're the fifth interview uh, for the month, uh, and I've asked them all this, this uh, same question or a similar question um, because you you do say you uh, you do seem seem to identify as Latinx. Is that how you've always identified, or and has that changed? at all during the years, throughout the years? It depends. Uh, you, I think when you use identifiers, you have to be taken into context into who you're speaking to and where you're at, right? When I'm speaking to a monolith of like a large amount of people and I don't, can't see faces and I don't know, I say Latinx because we could be all Chicanos, uh, Central Americans, Caribbean, Latino, you know, like it could be a whole, bunch of folks and that's the closest thing to our identity that I can find, right? That encompasses uh, all of us. Um, but then if I'm in a room in Southern California, I say Salvadoran, I don't really say Latina. I say I'm Salvadoran because I know that I'm in a hell Mexican room and people are, are start out being on, I was, I got booked to perform at a something for like a Chicano, I, I don't know, whatever. It was like a memorial for like a Chicano activist who, um, he wrote the something about the cockroach people or whatever. Um, anyway, so he was like a lawyer that was around during the, the Chicano memoratorium thing, whatever. And mm -hmm. so I had to write a poem about him. And I found out that he was like hella problematic. But I'm like, how do, how do I reconcile writing about this motherfucker for PBS? For PBS? And so I did my poem. But before I started the poem, I gave the disclaimer, like, I'm really honored to be here. I'm not Chicana, but I'm really honored to be here. So like, when you hear this, just know that I'm writing this as a Salvadoran woman. And then somebody in the audience goes, you are Chicana. I'm like, no, 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 I'm not. Because I know that a lot of people say that Chicanismo is like a, a political identity, but not, not where I come from. If I say Chicana, you think Mexican-American, which is fine to be that. I'm not like leading like a riot against the Mexican. <laughs> but um, my identity is really important. And in the way that it fits in Latinidad is really important because of what it is to be Salvadoran and mm. and the climate in my country and then the climate that this country has towards people from El Salvador and also the violence that Mexicans um, continue um, doing to Salvadorans, right? 
And so it's like in that context, I only identify as Salvadoran. So it's really important for me to uh, change that according to what rooms I'm in. So even if I stay Latina, I always refer back to El Salvador. And it's not about nationalism. It's more about the political aspect of it all, right? Like mm-hmm. these are people that survived the civil war. These are people that um, have had to deal with MS-13 who have with conditions that are so awful, they've had to migrate, you know, like all these things that they've had to migrate to this country. Like this is something that I come from a country that the United States and Mexico fucked up. And so now I'm going to be here and share those poems with you. And you're going to have to listen to them. And you can't, you can't erase my identity. You can't erase my identity just because it makes you feel more comfortable that we all like conchas <laughs> and, we, and we hot Cheetos. That, I'm not that kind of, like, I, that's not the kind of what I do, you know, but yes, yeah. Latina, Latinidad is, is a term that I use. Latinx um, is something that I use, even though a lot of folks get upset with the X. I'm like, why are y'all so mad at the X? <laughs> like, why can't we be inclusive? But whatever. That's yeah. a whole other thing. That's a that's a that's a whole nother talk show. Yeah, <laughs> we could spend whole another hour of that. So then, similarly, let me ask you because, like, we have been celebrating uh, Latinx Heritage Month. We've had people on here uh, from all over, as 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 diverse as we could be. Of course, we had some Mexicanos, Afro Latinas, Puerto Ricans, Dominicans. Now El Salvador, and I've asked them all these same two questions. So I got two questions for you. One: What is your favorite thing about El Salvador? Hmm. Oh, so there's so many things. I know these are the heavy hitting questions. Sorry. <laughs> no, I, I. You know what? My most favorite, favorite, favorite thing is um, it's like it's it's something that I can't even. Um, I don't know if you all saw the meme that was. You know how the guy with the cranberry like on the skateboard with the cranberry juice that that whole thing went viral, right? Yeah. So that someone took the Fleetwood Mac song. And then they did a boy on the back of a pickup truck. And I think he was like somewhere in Mexico and he's on the back of a pickup truck and there's like a volcano in the distance and like all this greenery. That is my favorite part of El Salvador that when I'm there, the world feels so enormous and so full of life and so vibrant. And I feel so connected to whoever I'm not, I don't know who my ancestors are past my grandparents. Mm -hmm. I don't have that privilege. Right. But when I'm in my country on the back of a pickup truck and it's just me and the sky and all the green and all the light and, you know, the green is green and the, and the blue is blue. And um, I can't remember Sandra's exactly exact, like exact lines about her being in Mexico, but mm-hmm. like everything is more vibrant and everything like you're more alive and you're more present in a way that that you you don't get to have a lot here. And that's my favorite thing that when I'm there, I feel like I. I feel like I belong mm. strongly to something, even though I wasn't born there. Right. You know, but I know that everybody that everybody that made me comes from there. Mm. And so like that's uh uh I think it's a it, it makes me feel powerful in in uh, some kind of way. I love that. All right. And then question number two, what is your favorite Salvadorian dish? Ooh, okay, so pan con pollo. Or they call it, if you're really savvy, you call it pangon chumpipe, which is turkey. Um, <laughs> uh, so it's basically a, a pollo chicken in the tomato sauce and um, the cebrado, so it's like shredded. Mm-hmm. And you put it in a in a in a roll, like a fucking a bolillo. And then you put on top, you put um, cabbage. Some people make cur- use cur- the curtido, 
I don't like it. Some people put mayo on the sides. I like the mayo on the sides. So it's like a wet sandwich. Think, mm. okay, it tastes a little familiar to a French dip sandwich, but it's chicken instead. And it has cabbage in it and berro mm. and radish and stuff like that. But it is so fucking bomb. And for every birthday, my mom cook, like lets us like ask for the meal that we want. And then I'm like, I want panes rellenos. And she's like, okay. And then she goes and <laughs> does so, the whole thing. Yeah. But pulls are bomb, but panes are better. Yes. Sounds like a torta ahogada. I can, I can, I can attest to it. I've, I've had it um, one time. It was very good. Uh, one time, and I was here in San Antonio. Um, a friend Rocky Torres uh, made that for us. Oh, and yes, I know her. Yeah. Yes, I know. I know her. <laughs> yeah. um, but also, I was in East Los Angeles uh, once at a parish. I was at a church. And after the church, after after mass, uh, whereas we would, like here in San Antonio, we would have maybe like breakfast tacos, you know. Mm-hmm. But they, they had pupusas. Mm-hmm. And, uh, that was my introduction. Uh, it was like the second or third time. But those are the best ones so far. My question I mean, yeah. where are the best pupusas? Mm-hmm. My mom's kitchen. No, I'm kidding. Uh, <laughs> yes, talk that no. shit, girl. <laughs> you know what though? The the pupusas in El Salvador are nothing like the pupusas here, because it's like, I, I mean, I need to write a piece about like I haven't figured out how to write about it yet, but it's like it's all American ingredients, right? Because you're here, and then we always want to make everything bigger here. So you know how the pupusas here are like this, right? And then they're thick, and then both the bigger and the thicker the better. But then they're like really greasy because the cheese isn't like freshly made cheese it's usually like mozzarella cheese and that like lets go of a lot of grease and whatever like all these things right but honestly i would imagine it's like guess how that was made that day usually like because electricity isn't very dependable so you have to use everything the day you make it so it's maize that you boiled that you took to the mill to get ground um it's carne that you went to go buy from someone who grew their own animals and then now they have it, right? And then you take that to the mill to, to get ground. And, and the pupusas there are like this. They're this small. And they're like a quarter. You For like a dollar, you could get like six of them, right? Like you feel rich for your life. Everybody, pupusas on me. But <laughs> the best pupusas that you could get is if you're in San Salvador, I would go to Comalapa, and, which is a part of El Salvador, where one of my aunts is from. And they have the best pupusas. If you're here in LA and you're looking for a pupusa place, um, we have Pupuseria Comalapa, which my family owns. Uh, my aunt and uncle own uh, a chain. I think there's five restaurants now. And so um, if you all ever want to, if you're in LA and you want to hit me up and I'll give you the address that's close to you for you to go support my family. Yes. Commer- right. and, that's, and that's the commercial part of the. the there you go. <laughs> <laughs> my show is brought to you by. Comalapa <laughs> Pupuseria. Yes, and you got my I, aunt. So true, you know, because like we were we were talking about food. I I I like to cook a lot and eat eat a lot. Um, we were talking about food, and it's like, why does food, you know, like because my family from Mexico, why does food in Mexico taste so much better? Like, why does Mexican food in Mexico taste better than Mexican food in Texas? It's because of the ingredients. It's because they're fresh. It's because they're native to that area. You know, so there's nothing like having fresh native ingredients in your food. My- my grandma is like, what chicken do you want to eat for dinner? Yeah. And I'm like, no, grandma, I don't eat animals I've met. <laughs> <laughs> I had a whole crisis the, like, when I was young. The first time I went to Salvador, I was 12, and I went without any, like, without my, I went by myself. Mom <laughs> stuck me in an airplane. 
And so then I had never met the relatives there. Like I hadn't seen my grandma since I was a baby, so I don't remember her, you know? And um, and then all my other deals and cousins and all these people I knew. So all of a sudden I was in this country that was like a fucking jungle. It felt like it. And then like and then my grandma's like killing fucking animals in front of me. And then I'm like, what the fuck? You know, like <laughs> she gets to PETA's gonna come for me. But she uh, gets the chicken and then like spins it and then that's it, because she cracked it. It's just intense. And you're like, no, not Carl. <laughs> no, I, my tío gave me a pollo and I thought he was giving it to me as like a pet. So I came and I was feeding it every day and I named him Ray because he was gonna be a rooster. And then I went to the beach one day and I came back and grandma had a caldo de pollo ready for us. And then later I was just like, I will eat like mamita. That's what we call her. Mamita, where's my pollo? Like I can't find him, I can't find Ray. And then she goes, I stop. And then she points at the yeah. at the soup and I'm crying, like, I don't want to eat pen. <laughs> uh, I saw something similar on Twitter the other day where someone um was talking about the trauma. Of playing with a goat in the morning, oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> and then seeing it on the on the table in the afternoon. Uh -huh. uh, it's so that happened to me with a pig. I there was a pig that I baptized. I don't know what I, I was very Catholic for a while. So I baptized <laughs> the pig, and then I named him Nessio. And he would pigs are like puppies. They follow you, and they want they love to be scratched, and they're puppies. And so I got really attached to Nessio, and then. Um, when I was leaving, my grandma goes, next year, that's going to be your tamales. So don't get attached. And so I was like, what? And then I had a cow too, Mancita, but she jumped off a cliff. Oh! I have trauma, <laughs> animal trauma in the Salvador. But for them, like animals are, are meant, like they're there to like. Sustain. You know, to sustain you. And, and they're, they're respected and they're loved, but then all parts of them get used and all of that. So, but you don't build relationships with them like we do here in the U.S. That's always really foreign to me when people are like, my dog is my child. I'm like, he's not. <laughs> I uh, am not sure. I hope my dog doesn't hear me because then he's going to be your kid. I'm not sure how to transition off of this topic, but I'm trying. <laughs> just, just, just go for a hard transition. It's fine. Earlier, earlier you mentioned how, um, you know, like you found the internet and you kind of like latched onto the internet because you, you felt so alone. And this was a place that you mm -hmm. found like community and people and, and all of that. Um, earlier this year, you released a zine called Soledad uh, yes. that was about, about loneliness and longing, which I think a lot of us have been feeling over the course of the last six months as we've been sheltering at home and isolating and quarantine and all of that stuff. Um, and I know for a lot of poets, it sometimes it's difficult to write in the moment of something. You kind of have to process it and then uh, and then be able to like put it out. Uh, but it seems like you've you've done that in this course. Talk to us a little bit about that zine and and how that came about. Well, for me, I can't process something until I've written about it. That's how I process. Mm -hmm. So when I'm in, like, let's say uh, something triggers a feeling for me and it starts as a knot in my throat and then, like, it's this feeling that's here and here, right? And then I'm like, oh, I need to write because I, I need to put this knot somewhere. And that's usually everything that brings me to the paper. Like, it's that impulse, right? And, and so... Um, I write so much and not, not everything's good. So I'm not boasting. I'm just saying that I write so much because it's how I process, how I cope, 
how I deal with things, right? Again, um, I have bipolar disorder and some days that it's really unbearable, especially during this pandemic. And 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 um, I have really, really good days and I have awful days. And, and so I allow myself to write whenever I feel the impulse to write. And so I was sitting around with a lot of the phones and, and um, I also am not putting out a project here because I now have a literary agent and now we're shopping the manuscript around and trying to see what it looks like to shoot for the stars, right? Mm-hmm. And um, and so we'll see what happens with that. But um, that takes a little bit longer. So uh, accepting the fact that I'm not going to have a book out this year or next year has been a little rough for me because for the last three falls, I've had a I've had a book, and it's not about like I wrote a book and I'm this. It's more of the communication I built with my with my readership, with my mingos, which is what I call them. <laughs> and, and there's this relationship. So I wanted to, I feel like during this time, it's when it's most necessary for us to speak to our readers. Those of us that come to us looking for themselves and looking for someone to say, you're not alone. So um, I had like about a dozen poems and, and maybe more. And then I like shifted through them. What I wasn't using, because I'm writing a manuscript. So I took what I wasn't using for this manuscript and put them into this digital zine that I did on Canva. And it was so easy and so accessible. And it, uh, like I released it, I think a week ago. It's been a week, so it's really recent. And I'm only gonna sell until the 31st of October. So it's very limited and it's digital. So it doesn't, um, you know, we don't have to, you don't have to wait for anything in the mail. You get it in the moment, you read on your phone and then like it's there whenever you wanna go back to it. Mm-hmm. And um, I think I, I like that, although I, and moving to be working in institutions, I always want to keep that line directly from me, my reader, uh, as much as I can. And that was kind of what Soledad was, where it was just like, hey, I don't have a book, but here, take this. You know, <laughs> like, take it, I love you, bye. You know, that kind of thing. Yeah. And so, um, and but I put a price on it because I also feel that people need to understand that they have to invest in art. Because mm. if you start giving your shit away all the time, once you want to charge for it, they're like, but wait a minute, but wait, what happened? No. So mm-hmm. it's a, a balance that you have to maintain between the accessibility and also sustaining yourself because we live in a country that wants your money. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, uh, the other thing I really enjoy about your books um, is the aesthetic, the covers, you know, the colors, uh, the flowers. Uh, yeah. Or the, yeah. That's, so, okay. How do so, you about so Corazon has the mango branch, the mango tree branch on it. And when I sent, I, when I did the book, you, so you have your publisher, you do your book, and then you start talking about what you think the cover would look like. They ask you to send like references, like what are things you like, what are things you don't like, what are colors, whatever. My ass had some corny ass shit in mind. And I was like, I want a woman with a heart for a head and I don't know what the fuck. <laughs> and so then like, I send them images and whatever. And because um, my first scene, the cover is a woman with a moon for her head. And so I wanted to like, kind of like throw back to that. But when the uh, Cassidy Trier, who is designed the covers, when she read the poems that I already had in the manuscript, she noticed that I talk about mangoes a lot and I had realized that I use them so much in my work. And so, because for me, uh, our property in Salvador, our, our home has a lot of mango trees. So for me, like going to pick the mangoes, it's like an act of love kind of. And so, um, and not kind of, it is. And so 
when she came back with the cover art, I didn't even know that that's what it was, you know? And so then in the Soto, once we had the Soto, I knew that I wanted it to be a lemon tree branch because my home here in my garden, we have two lemon trees. So I'm like, oh, the mango tree for the reference for Salvador. And then this is for my home here in LA. And then on my third book, um, this branch is a jacaranda tree. And so uh, these trees line the block that I live on and they're all over LA. They were brought here in the 40s or the 20s or sometime when I wasn't born. <laughs> and so when they bloom, they they're, they grow so big and on my street, they can up the street. So when they're blooming, my whole, like my street is covered in purple. And um, and if you look at it, the colors are also yellow and purple, which are legal colors. Mm -hmm. And it just so happened that uh, the book uh, was a love letter to LA, and um, and I have a lot of poems referencing LA in this book, and and it was uh, I was writing it when Nipsey Hussle was murdered, and so a lot of that, like what I see LA as, and what I want my legacy to be within my own city, was a big part of that. So yeah, so all the covers are, are trees that are very special to me, and the colors um, are colors that mean certain things to me, and um, and it's always a continued conversation between me and my readers, but also between me and the place like Pono. Mm -hmm. I love that. Well, it really seems like you have kind of like found your found your your space, right? And and your groove as you continue to move forward in in your not just your career, but your life, right? Um, but it hasn't always been that way, right? You you talk about uh, your, your history of catfishing. Uh, you talk about how you haven't always felt so, so positive about your image and your body. And you see that in a lot of your work, this kind of like uh, learning how to exist and learning how to give yourself permission to exist, right? How has that journey been for you to get to where you are now? Man, there were so many parts of my life that were so lonely, that were so hopeless. Um, you know, I grew up with an alcoholic father, loved my dad, and my dad tried his hardest to be a good father, but he had an addiction, right? And so then, and then that shows up in your family dynamics, all that. And my family is the, so for me, my, my greatest source of love and joy has also been my greatest source of pain. Mm -hmm. And that's always been what I've been trying to like find language for in my work, right? where it also extends to my own body. And like everything that I learned about my body that was negative, I learned from the people that I love the most, right? And so it's been kind of like, how do you how do you figure it out? Like, how do you do all of that? And and so my work is very, um, very confessionalist, right? Like I'm always confessing things. I'm always uh, surrendering to things in what I write, because like I said, it's how I survive. Uh, there's a poem in Hermosa that says, like, I wasn't, I don't know when you got here. I wasn't writing for you. I was writing to keep myself alive. Mm. But now you're here. So, like, what's up? You know, like, <laughs> like let's have a party. But for the most part, uh, a lot of my work uh, uh, has been, like, like the last poem I read my set was at my funeral was kind of uh, being, like, it, I think it encompasses what my work is a lot, where it's just, like, Dude, like there were times where I didn't know I was gonna make it to this. Like I remember I was a teenager, I never thought I was gonna make it to my 30s mm -hmm. for whatever reason. There's somebody was talking about a meteor hitting Earth and whatever, whatever year, and I was like, oh, that's fine, I'm dead. Like I was like, I'll be dead. Something's gonna happen and I'll die. And then like um, because I have I have a disorder and like uh that causes 
a lot of those feelings and like you know, you're fucking 16, 17, you get diagnosed with that shit. You don't know what it means. And like, you don't know anybody else with anything like that. And so then all of a sudden you're feeling weird things on top of your hormones being all wonky and like your parents, all these things. And then school telling you that you're a fuck up and, and all this stuff. And so, and so I think I write so much about the dark spaces because I know how they consume you. Mm. And, 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 and I don't want to go back there and I don't want anybody to live there if they don't have to. And, um, but I don't write it on some data or complex shit. I write it on like, these are like my stories and I hope they're useful to you. Mm. Well, um, it seems that LA is, is very, uh, market part of you and very, very special to you. Um, I was gonna ask like for you to describe why, why that, but, um, LA's go Los Angeles going through something really, really big right now, isn't it? Like there's mm -hmm. a bit of a celebration going on. We got um, we got an NBA championship and we might no jinx might have a baseball championship too if they get oh. together. We'll yeah. so what's what's that been like for you? Uh, like has that has that been a disruption? Has that been just celebration? Has that been um, like what is it? My guard dog is gonna show. Um, <laughs> uh, Sunday when they won, I cried. Like I, I cried. So like when Kobe passed away earlier in the year, like Kobe's a, a very polarizing person, right? Like we all know his history and all that stuff. But remove that, right? Um, the Lakers, Kobe, are a staple of LA. But also as a as a daughter, as a daddy's girl. That was one of the one ways me and my dad connected, right, with, with with basketball. And we would watch the games together, and I have vivid memories of my dad being like, Kobe, you know, or, or like when they won a game, him yelling at the window or him going out there because my asshole neighbor was, like, putting off fireworks. And so he's out there, like, cheering with the neighbors. And so for me, it was so much of – and then, like, also being able to connect with my boy cousins, right, in ways that I usually don't get to connect with them. But, like, because I'm, like, basketball, we get to, like, all, like, sit around and like have a beer and like it's it's mem like it's memories that I'm like oh I'm finally able to connect with the people in my life that I usually don't find common ground with and Kobe was that vessel for us for that bridge and so seeing him pass away was like mourning so much of my like my teen years ditching school to go to the parade. I was dating a guy for a while that had I slept with Shaq catch on his forehead. It was a lot <laughs> 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 but then, like, like having all that grief, and then also the pandemic happening, and LA is the the epicenter of homelessness and houselessness in in this country, and so seeing and gentrification is ravaging. Like seeing so much fucked up shit happening to have a win, even though none of us had anything to do with the win, but having <laughs> a win for the city. Yeah. Did y'all see the, the 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 woman that was out there in a fucking uh, in a bubble? There was a woman in a plastic bubble running oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> downtown Los Angeles. And that was kind of like for and I tweeted, I said, and for one night everything was all right. Mm -hmm. And that's what Sunday night felt like. For yeah. one night, there was no pandemic, there were no protests, there was there was not oh, the police were still out on their bullshit, but whatever. But for one night, the city felt like the city. Mm -hmm. and, and 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 I know that everybody needs that. But my home is LA, and it was such a a, a moment to have that. Somebody yeah. is asking a question in the chat. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I want to say, like, we definitely uh, are looking forward to the days that we can go back to life just being life. Um, <laughs> yes. And I would love to just kind of, like, end it. Yay! Uh, but I think this is such a great question that came through in the chat that I think we can definitely end on this. Um, I want to ask her, what did she find easier to embrace, body positivity or mental health? They're both the same thing. One can't exist without the other. Like, mm. if you're not, uh, if your mental health isn't in a good place, you're you won't be in positive about it. Like, you won't feel positive, and it's okay. And that is okay. I always say that body positivity or just self love. I call it self love, mm. right? Loving yourself, however the fuck it is that you're showing up with your panza or your frizzy hair or your fucking anxiety or your depression, or like whatever, like that one man you can't dump, whatever, whatever your thing is, right? Um, it's just being patient with yourself and it's showing up. Sometimes you can, like I, I, I describe it like armor. Sometimes you're able to get up out of bed and put on the whole armor, right? And you're ready and you're like, nobody can fuck with me. I'm going out into the world. I'm a fucking battle tank, right? And some days you wake up and you only get the shoes on and you're like, all I can do is just walk right now. And like, I don't like, please be tender with me because I don't have the rest of my gear on. And and that's just, I think the best thing that I've learned and what was, and nothing's been easy to embrace, but what's made everything easier um, and, and just going on in life is to be patient with myself. If I wake up and I am also a disabled woman, I have a chronic illness. So if I wake up and I'm having a shitty ass day, oh, it's a shitty day. It doesn't mean it doesn't mean I'm anything's wrong with me as a person. It just means that this is part of my life, and that today is going to be a day, a low energy day. It's going to be a day of minimal work. It's going to be a day of dodging emails and phone calls, and, <laughs> I have to be, and I have to be okay with that. And I have to also advocate for myself and being able to tell people like, "Hey, um, I'm sorry, I wasn't." doing this for you at a time that you would have wanted, but I, this is what was happening or this is what is happening. And so I think the best thing has been for me is how I talk to myself and how I speak for myself. And a lot of times we we want someone to come and speak for us and to take up for us. But many times you are your best, you are your best champion. And so you tell people like, yo, I need you to leave me the fuck alone for a week because some shit happened and I can't cope. And then like people have no choice but to fall back and like let you figure it out. And yeah. then other days, and also the last thing that I will leave is take a picture on the good days so you could find it on the bad days. Mm. So on a day that you feel like a bad bitch or a bad motherfucker or a bad enter whatever it is that you like to call yourself. <laughs> um, whenever you feel like beautiful and vibrant or whenever you feel immense joy, maybe not even in your own body, but whenever you feel immense joy and happiness, take pictures of yourself in those moments. Take pictures of yourself and post them on your social media so that when you are having a shitty day and you're scrolling and you're having all the, that comparison with other people and being like, well, why the fuck does he get to do that? And why does she have that? And whatever. You will come across a picture of yourself where you look as beautiful and vibrant as you were feeling in that moment. And, and you know that you will go back to that again. Mm. So that's, we can end it on that. I love that. Yes. When you're feeling the end chingon X. Yes. Well, yes, yeah, you are definitely una chingona, ching, chingona and have 
we we are lucky to have you and the world is lucky to have you and your work happy to have joined y'all thank you for having spent this hour for us if you could please do us the honor of closing us out with one more poem yes i will thank you so much um, I'm gonna close with my favorite poem that I perform at almost every single set I do. Um, and and it's my favorite poem for many reasons, pero ahí vamos. All of my poems are about love. All of my poems are about some boy. All of my poems are about my fat. All of my poems are about my parents. All of my poems are about my Spanish my Salvador, my English, my Los Angeles, my pre-gentrification Silver Lake, my Echo Park before the food trucks and yoga parties, my belly swinging by the vegan restaurants, my double chin laughing in overpriced coffee shops, my minimum wage paycheck, my staying too long in too many places, my poor taste in men, my hope, my online dating, my bad dates, my ex-boyfriends, my ex-boyfriends and their girlfriends who live next door. My niece, my niece and her laughter. My niece and all of her questions. My niece and her little hands pressed against my face. My niece and her hands wet with the tears on my face. My depression, my secret sadness, my ocean always asking for my body. My anxiety whispering my name at the nape of my neck, my hands and how they listened and slammed against my body, my body and how no one ever saw the bruises because no one ever saw my body. All of my poems are about my brown girl body. My everyone has an opinion about this body, body. My I have to fight to love it every fucking day, body. My, my big, fat, beautiful body. My red lipstick smile my curly Salvadoran hair, my mommy's hair and my hair. Oh, my mommy, my papi, my drunk and angry papi. My papi yelling out my name in the middle of the night. My papi and his belt against my skin, my papi's belt and how it whistled in the air before finding my skin, my long nights, counting his snores, my grieving him 10 years before he died, my watching him die, my exhale when he died, my life after he died, my, my good life after he died, my guilt, my heart, my love. All of my poems are about my parents, my hard working migrant parents, my hardly any English parents, my Saturday afternoon listening to Juan Gabriel parents, my early, 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 early Sunday morning mass parents, my sisters, my sisters and I in our prettiest dresses. Oh, my sisters, my first friends, my first saviors, my first lesson in getting the fuck over it. My singing at the top of their lungs until mommy yells, shut the hell up, this isn't a musical sisters. My no one, no one gets it like you do sisters. You see all of my poems are about love. The times that it came and floods and the years, oh, the years that I forgot what love was. You see, all of my poems are collection plates. I fill and fill and fill and fill and fill and I have yet to come up empty and I don't think I ever will. Thank God for my poems. 
for how they always find me, for this heart that believes them and these hands that always receive them. Thank you so much for having me. It has been a delight. Yes, Yes, Thank you so much for coming Thank by. You. I do have to say, when my um, like a few years ago, the librarian at my school asked for some books of poetry and what would I recommend, and uh, they bought Corazón. They bought two copies of Corazón, and uh, my student, I've seen my students read it uh, unprompted. Like I never said, go buy it, go 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 borrow that book. No, it's on their desk. I've seen them read it. Um, so thank you for that. Thank you so much. Thank you. You are a true example of how a little brown girl from LA can make it in this world. So thank you. Yeah, we thank are you. here. <laughs> we are too. And thank you for this beautiful space you hold. And I truly, uh, this has been, I think, my fourth event of today. And I was running on fumes. But y'all made me feel like I forgot. Like I'm like hyped now. And, and so I appreciate y'all so, so much. You host a beautiful space and a beautiful community. Shout out to Rooster, who I see is in the comments. Um, <laughs> Yes. Thank, She's you. Been there. <laughs> yes. thank, thank you so much thank you thank you that was Jessica Salgado everybody again if you want to go find her work it is on her website jessicasalgado.com mm -hmm. uh, you can find her uh, link to where her books are her zine and all that follow her and on get the Venmo's on there get her and drop her some yeah yeah you can just send her a little tip Venmo Jessica oh. Salgado Follow her on Instagram, right. Jessica Star with two R's. You know, do that thing. <laughs> so this is usually the point of the show where I ask you, Eddie, who's coming up next week. Yeah. But I have that information today. Oh, but okay. I, I, I mean, I, if you I, want to share it, we can be traditional. Oh, I, I wanted to share it because, I mean. Well, then who do we got, Eddie? Hi. But no, no, you, you can do it. You can do it. Are you excited? Are you I'm, I'm really excited because this is a powerhouse poet in person. If you've ever seen this man perform, like he will bring the roof down. I am so excited to see it happen on a virtual space. We got the one and only Black Chakra, Jacob Mabry, coming to the Words and Shit stage right. next week. And not, not just, okay, but it's not just the, the poetry, because that's going to be amazing. I know that already. But... Jacob Mayberry is a movie expert, a mm -hmm. pop culture expert, uh, a rap expert. Uh, this conversation could go in so many directions because I've seen him on stage too. And the stuff that he does that's not poetry part is also really funny and hilarious and witty. So mm -hmm. it's going to be a great interview. Yes, Jacob Mayberry once almost threw a chair at me. True story. But we can talk about that next week. <laughs> We're in <the> virtual space. <laughs> next week. Um, until then, thank you, everybody, for joining us here live or listening to the show on our podcast. For those of you who didn't know, we now have a podcast. All of our previous episodes can be found on our podcast wherever you get your podcast. So follow words and shh on Instagram and Twitter right. or write out art, write art out on Facebook or on Instagram or the blah poetry spot on Facebook to get more information. Um, until next week, that was Eddie Vega. And that was Chico Ordunia.
Thank you all for joining us. Stay safe, everybody.